And welcome, everyone. This is the Mind Sculptors Podcast. I am your host, Callahan, and we have a great show lined up for you all today. But before we get into it, I just want to take a moment to thank you all for joining us this week. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please make sure to like, subscribe, and comment down below. If you want access to our Discord server as well as some extra content, make sure to head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash themindsculptors, or you can check out the link in the description. Today we are going to be doing our second episode in the Grand Unified Theory of Deck Building series that we are doing. Uh, and this week we're going to be doing it on efficiency. So joining me again for this week's episode is Professor's Cobblepot. How's it going? How's it going, Cobble? Doing well. Good to see you. Good, good. Uh, and Professor Pongo. How's it going? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here as always. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's it's good to be back doing this. Uh, we got a lot of people who really enjoyed the first one that we did. Uh, so I'm really excited to kind of keep uh, diving into this and really kind of seeing all of what you uh, you have in store for us. Uh, so just as a quick recap in our last episode, um, I just to kind of give you an idea of what the grand unified theory of deck building is is uh, we we started off talking about what a consistent deck is. Um, we talked about how efficiency is one of the main ways consistency is achieved in deck building. And so today we're going to be kind of looking into the efficiency piece of that uh, in more depth. Uh, right off the bat, then, uh, the first question that I'd really have uh, to kind of get us all rolling is when we're talking about efficiency within this context, Pongo, how are you defining what efficiency means? Yeah, great question. Um, so we're going to take kind of a systematic approach to this today. Um, you know, not that we didn't in the past or anything, but, you know, we're really going to try to kind of harken back to the fundamentals here. Um, so when we're talking about efficiency, uh, we can kind of take a, a definition where in general efficiency is like a measurable thing uh, and it quantitatively it's quantitatively determined by the ratio of useful output to total useful input so you have a certain amount of inputs and you know these are th these can be different things in different contexts um, and then obviously you're measuring how much output you get from those inputs this is this is a very science like i said you know professor pongo a uh, very scientific definition there. So when we're talking about efficiency, as far as we're talking in, you know, magic, EDH, CEDH, really, you know, however, how are we, what are our inputs in magic? Um, so our inputs, you know, quite literally are the cards that we play and like the mana that we pay to play those cards. So at a sort of base level, um, our most fundamental inputs in magic are both cards and mana and our outputs are we could define them as like the desi desirable outcomes on the game state so effects on the game okay and so um you know like you said it's like access to mana right and the cards that you have that do the thing and the outcomes that we get um so when we're looking at that and, you know, kind of how that all wraps together, excuse me for a second, what the heck, um, you know, when we're talking about 
what magic is, you know, like, like break this down for me a little bit more. I'm sorry. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so magic as a game is fundamentally about accruing and subsequently managing resources. Um, so when we talk about resources, kind of like what we were talking about before, you know, we're talking about, again, these cards in hand and, and mana. Um, and so most of the time we, we tend to think about just mana as our resource but like it's not just that right it's also our cards in hand and our cards in play and right. it doesn't stop there too i mean other zones that we have available to us are um, other resources that we have you know available and uh, you'll, you'll see that a lot when we talk about specific cards if um you're 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 looking about uh, a, a card can be very efficient in one kind of resource. It'll often have a trade-off in another resource. And we can talk about some specifics when we uh, start drilling down into that. But um, in, a, in a lot of cases, it's in, in order to become efficient in one resource, there, there has to be some, you know, a, a give in one place and, and a take in another. Right. And so we're talking kind of about a simplified model of resources here in, in the sense that um, a lot of the time in magic, when we're talking about magic, you know, we can talk about like our life total as a resource. We can talk about the graveyard as a resource. I would be inclined to say that if you look at both of those things hard enough, if you look at like kind of the context where you would bring up either of those as resources, and a lot of a lot of the time, those will both kind of at their core um, be more fundamentally about either mana or or cards and you know like access to either of those if we're talking about like life total for example um you know we could talk about converting life total into another resource um so that's just using your life kind of as one of those more fundamental resources and when we're talking about the graveyard well we're kind of talking about it as an extension of your hand so in in some respect in our in our theoretical model here what we're talking about is two fundamental things and then obviously you know we don't want to get too bogged down in the details of of all the other resources available to us in the game that you know to to a large extent i would say um get subsumed into our, our main right. sort of overheading overheading topics over our so if resources. go ahead Callahan. so so if i'm so if i may so if we're talking about this, you know, kind of equation that we're using to measure the efficiency of a card, um, you know, one could look at a net, basically a net, like a, a net neutral as far as efficiency goes card of like opt. It's one mana, you get one card. Um, and you know, that would maybe be like a baseline for sort of like, a efficient like a a neutral a neutrally efficient do you get what i'm trying to say <laughs> right i yeah. i suspect that sort you're probably <laughs> wanting to 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 start with opt and then compare it to something like ancestral recall where right right you're 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 looking at your you you have a baseline for evaluating whether a card is efficient or not. So you say, let's start with this one card, and then you can look at another card and be able to put it into perspective as to, you know, Ancestral Recall is much more efficient because you are trading in one card, and the 
the output that you're getting from that is three new cards. And mm-hmm. um, so that that is is largely how it is that we will evaluate cards, you know, as 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 we dive into them. And and that is largely how the the CEDH metagame evaluates cards to determine what it is that's good enough to make it you know make a cut into a deck for instance but that's um the that's going to get into i think specifics a little sooner than we want to we want right. to we want to start off being kind of really general here and then kind of gradually make our way into specificity right so when we 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 talk about card advantage and mana advantage um you know really what does that mean then uh, so I think like these in particular, when we're talking about resources and, you know, obviously we're kind of contextualizing this entire con- conversation um, around this notion of resources in the game, um, card advantage and mana advantage are relatively easy to understand at, at a base level. So card advantage is kind of just the, the most general widespread understanding of the of the term is just having more cards. Um, than somebody else. You have an advantage in terms of the number of cards that you have, um, and this affords you more options, uh, where having more mana, having a mana advantage, means that you have um, y- you have an advantage because you have the possibility of playing more cards. But clearly, these two things are like not entirely distinct. Um, you know, one thing I think that's often forgotten in conversations about card advantage is that it's not enough to just have more cards in hand than an opponent, even though like right. for like a lot of people that can kind of be where it starts and where it ends as a concept. Um, you know, having more cards in play is also something that needs to be taken into consideration. Like just drawing cards is not the whole story. Um, so and, and just having more cards in hand is certainly not the whole story. You need to actually deploy your cards at some point. Uh, and you need to count all the cards that you have in play. Um, so, you know, sometimes sometimes it's useful just to be drawing cards and to have more cards because that gives you more options. And maybe you haven't deployed as many cards as an opponent has. Um, but, you know, maybe in finding a specific card, you find the right answer for a given situation. And great, you're off to the races. But uh, other times, just having more cards is it's potentially going to restrict you because you're going to be restricted in terms of the velocity at which you can deploy cards because, you know, cards, playing cards is not free in Magic. There's another input in terms of efficiency, and that's mana. So, you know, you're going to be restricted in terms of the mana costs of your cards in a lot of situations. Right. Those those two, you know, just to to, to reiterate, um, Having cards and having a means of deploying cards, a lot of times that's mana, but it, not always, um, are, are, are two things that you, you, can, you can look at them individually, but you, know, you, can, you can have an infinite number of cards, but if you can't actually deploy them, then you're not going, it's not valuable. You can also have an infinite amount of mana, but if you don't have any cards in hand, that's also not going to be valuable. So there, you, know, you, you can look at them as individual, but a lot of times you have to look at the way that they compose together as in, in a, an actual game state to be able to, you know, evaluate how um, advantageous that is going to make your uh, role in any given game uh, look. 
So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so when we're, we're, we're talking about putting stuff onto the battlefield and we're talking about deploying them, you know, this is obviously an important piece of this discussion, right? Yeah. Um, I think the notion of actually deploying your cards is ex- exceptionally important. Um, <laughs> You know, what we've been doing up until now has essentially been recontextualizing card advantage. It's not purely related to the number of cards that you have access to in hand. Um, it's, it's also related to being able to use those cards. Um, this, I think that this deeper understanding of card advantage kind of um, and, and how it's linked to the resource system in Magic um and and how it's related to mana in magic right because we already defined cards as a resource um it it allows us to think of of what unites these two things and it's the fact that together they represent a form of action economy so so when we're when you say action economy we're like what does that mean so action economy is a term that you don't necessarily see a ton a ton in mad like being used in sort of magic theory circles um you do i'm not saying that it, it it doesn't show up here at all but i think where you actually see it a lot more is in like D circles of all places um and D, so you you don't really have the same form of resources that we do in magic um you know what you have instead is the ability to perform a certain number of actions you know, each time it's kind of your turn to do something. If you're in an encounter, you know, you can cast X many spells, you can attack X many times, et cetera, et cetera. You have a certain amount of actions you can take per turn. Um, but in in magic, obviously, you have all of that, right? You have a certain amount of actions that you can take. Um, beyond that, you also have certain things that can restrict what actions you can take. And we'll get into that in a bit. Um, but then you have a resource system, um, which on top of, you know, your potential to perform actions is going to, um, have a major impact in terms of, you know, what you can do at what points in the game. Right. Once, once, once we start talking about action economy, it, it, it begins to kind of bring into focus the, the, the role that we have. Um, outside of the game and inside the game. And what I mean by that is that um, in terms of efficiency, we're making choices when we are building our decks. So we're making choices of, okay, what cards do we want to have? I want to have these cards that are going to, that are going to be, you know, giving me additional cards or rituals that are going to be giving me additional mana at at these certain rates. And, And you're making these choices outside of the game. Inside of the game, we are also making choices and there's different archetypes and so on. Or there, there, there's different ways for you to influence the efficiency of players, either yourselves or other players' ability to play the game and influencing other players or your own action economy. You can make your own spells more efficient through you know, something like um uh what's the it's a the the helm card the two man artifact uh, helm of, helm of awakening. awakening 
Helm of Awakening, you know, for instance. Um, or, you know, you can do the opposite with, you know, with like a Thalia effect. Um, so efficiency is going to be something that when you are in the midst of a game, you're going to be looking for ways to influence your ability to take actions and your opponent's abilities to, ac- to take actions. And that is a, um, a huge dimension for breaking the parity of gameplay. And uh, when we're talking about the parity of gameplay, it's, you know, if everything is at parity, then everyone is, is making, you know, is, is moving along at their game kind of at the same rate. And in order to gain advantage... We want to create disparity at the rate that people are either deploying cards to their board or finding cards to put into their hand or, you know, getting, you know, drawing cards to get into their hand, all of those different things. Those things are all going to come to bear as part of that equation. Right. And I think also, um, you know, in in CEDH and in EDH in particular, and I guess also in, in vintage to a large extent, we talk about like ramping a whole, whole lot um, and ramping, you know, from a certain perspective is cheating on the natural mana system of magic, whereby like normally, at least in magic as sort of intended by Richard Garfield, <laughs> although I don't even know how true this is, because if we look at how early magic was, you know, I think this that is man probably- <laughs> designed Shaharazard. That man wanted things to be weird. Come yeah, on. I, I think this is even less the case, um, perhaps. But, you know. The, the, the thinking was always, you know, you play your one land per turn and like eventually you kind of like have more mana after X many turns. Um, and, you know, the idea is that this is going to increase uh, your, your space in which you can uh, perform actions. So your action economy is intended to grow with passing turns. Um, you know, whether or not that's actually the case, looking at cards like Black Lotus and like the Moxon and stuff like that, um, right. there's a whole other can of fish, but like a uh, can of worms rather. But like, um, you know, I, I think that it certainly applies for formats like Standard, where uh, you know you you tend to follow things more on curve, um, and that mm-hmm. tends to be much more of a factor. Right, for yeah. sure. In Standard, you'll 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 see most games, you know except for when someone's playing Simic or whatever, but um, so players are, are, right, players <laughs> are, are generally playing one land per turn and drawing one card per turn in a lot of cases. Um, and the, 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 the goals that you see in people's decks um, when, you know, you're, you're not at the most, you know, competitive eternal formats are around trying to, you know, increase the number of cards that you're seeing and increase the the number of cards that you're able to deploy and the the decks that are that are able to action on on that desire are the decks that succeed and wind up winning games yeah and so you know we're talking about card advantage on the battlefield and you know we, we hear this a lot where it's like, you know, I'm buried under this person's, you know, card advantage. This guy's got all this card advantage. But what is that actually like referring to, Pongo? Yeah, so a uh, good question again. I think like we've been up until now talking about deploying cards and like you said, you know, the sort of notion of card advantage on the battlefield. Um, 
you know, it's not just a question of having cards, it's also a question of playing your cards. Um, and so burying your opponents in card advantage, it's not just the act of drawing more cards than they do, it's really, like, the times that we say that, and I, and I guess it's kind of like, it, it's sort of like a naive, sort of like like an early in your magic career type of thinking that like, oh, like they're, they're talking about the fact that he's drawing so many cards, like that he's getting so much card advantage. But like, actually most of the time when we're saying that, like what we're talking about is the fact that this person's drawing a lot of cards. Sure. That's often a part of it, but more that they're taking a lot of game actions. So like sometimes, you know, you're not even necessarily drawing cards. Sometimes you're just activating planeswalkers and like your planeswalkers are doing things, you know, planeswalkers, often draw a lot of cards um but they can perform all kinds of other actions you know they can create tutus they can create you know other other forms of advantages um they can take cards out of your opponent's hand and you know we'll, we'll kind of get into how that that can also be a form of an inversion of just this pure card advantage notion but basically if you think of like planeswalkers on the battlefield, you know, not just the fact that they can be drawing cards, but like just the fact that they're kind of like an extra spell every turn. And, you know, right. like they're just doing that thing every turn, churning out some kind of value. That's that's kind of this notion that we're getting at, right? Like you're just taking more and more actions, you're taking more actions than your opponent can, and that will tend to lead you to be in an advantageous state. Right. Normally the the way that we are able to get actions is because those actions are written on a card so you play a card and you get an action being able to have actions that you can repeat without necessarily needing additional cards um, you can think of that very much as like having a virtual card that right. you're you know you're, you're getting into your hand um, and we, we can think of this not just from the perspective of you know cr of so, so you want to have you want to take more actions than your opponents, and you want to be able to have more of a board presence than your opponents have. Um, one way to do that is like ramping and and to you know to uh, draw more cards to accelerate your velocity of action economy. But an, another dimension to this too is removal. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if if an opponent has a let let's let's say you and your opponent both have a planeswalker. If you can remove their planeswalker, you are creating advantage because you are removing their development. And they have investment in the development that they've got on the board. So um, whether you're doing a, you know, a, a single target removal of something that is crucial to, I don't know, some synergistic engine that they have in their board state, or using a wrath when somebody is ahead of you in development, and, um, you know, bringing things back to parity where they have lost more resources in that particular exchange, um, the, those are really important as well to that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good point that you bring up with the wrath in particular. Um, we, can, we can talk about that kind of equation. We can harken back to it. And if we're spending one card to, like, destroy, for example like the aggro decks board and let's say they've got like three cards so we're now suddenly getting a three three for one um you know we spent one card and you know some amount of mana to have kind of like a disproportionate effect on the battlefield especially if we compare that to 
um, like a single target removal, for example. You know, if, if you use like a Thoughtseize and take like a random creature out of somebody's hand, but then they have like five, you know, other useful spells, it kind of like, that's bad for you. <laughs> I can like, confirm that in Historic when I Thoughtseize somebody and I see them just have a grip full of like that same card or other stuff to do, I just am like, <sighs> Yeah, Fun. that's when that's why people really run bad. Cabal Therapy. <laughs> yeah, and that's why that card is is broken. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so to you know to some extent, like um, certainly you know we ha- we can't just talk about like trading one for one. Um, we we can talk about you know that concrete kind of card advantage, which is just trading two or three for one against you know cards. Um, you know, Thoughtseize you know, for how much I just maligned it there is actually an incredibly powerful card because in a lot yes. of situations <laughs> it can take their only meaningful spell, right? So if you take their only meaningful spell, then, you know, if they have like a bunch of blanks as the remainder of their hand, you've just reduced their action economy to basically nothing. Um, you know, they they could draw into something and, you know, like that's the thought sees players like that's just the life of a Thoughtseize player, right? Like, oh, they just got the card again on the top. Like, why did I play this card? Um, but, like, you know, obviously that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you Thoughtseize someone and, and they're kind of just floundering for multiple turns because they were really dependent on that, that particular card to um, push them forward, to allow them to continue developing, to gain more advantage. I think another right. good and example... Then- oh, Sorry. I was, I was no, just going to say I, I one was, last example. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, like, as far as blanking cards goes, we could look at something like Chalice of the Void. Um, you know, Chalice of the Void, let's say you play it on one, as, as you would often would do in, in a format like Legacy. Um, you know, it has a similar effect to what we just talked about with Thoughtseize, where Thoughtseize, you know, maybe it, you get lucky and you take their only meaningful spell, or, or the the spell that they absolutely need to have to disrupt your game plan. But like with Chalice of the Void, you could like theoretically completely shut them off of multiple spells. Um, so at that point, you're kind of gaining a virtual form of advantage, right? Because you're essentially saying they can't deploy those cards. Right. The, the, the thing that ties this to efficiency is you're... When, when we're talking about, you know, action economy, it's, you know, how many meaningful things are you doing per turn? You know, you, you have X amount of resources and what are, what are the results that you're getting from those resources? Right. If you, you've got somebody in a situation where they, they have all of these resources, but they're not doing anything, that's still part of the efficiency discussion. Because what you've done is you're 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 reducing their outputs to zero, so um, and 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 that's 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 huge for being able to you know command advantage in a game. So it's it you know it, it's 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 you you don't want to just look at you know how efficient is this card. You want to be looking at how how efficient is the game state. And that's why we we talk about things about you know parity and um, influencing the ability for you know influencing your own ability to take more actions and reducing your opponent's abilities to take meaningful actions. I right. think that's good. Yeah, I think it's it's meaningless to talk about efficiency. I think 
in a complete vacuum it's it's always contextualized within the game and within the um effect on a game that uh, a particular card can have at a particular mana cost and also the circumstances of your game in question i think that's something we'll come back to in a little bit and one thing um you know as we're talking about you know card advantage on the battlefield and not to totally move away from that, but like we were talking about, you know, stuff like Wrath of God and Thoughtseize and Chalice of the Void. You know, those are things that we tend to think of when we're thinking of like tempo. Um, you know, I know several, a couple year, couple standards ago, uh, a very popular deck and standard for a while was Mono Blue Tempo. And so when we're talking about tempo and how that relates to the sort of efficiency thing, what are we talking about, Pongo? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm glad you brought up the the example of the Mono Blue Tempo deck from Standard, because uh, I just want to be absolutely clear that to begin with, we're not going to be talking about like the deck archetype itself. Um, right. Although these two things are related, and we're n- n- you know certainly we're going to talk about tempo decks. You know, just hold on to your butts. We're going to get there. Um, <laughs> tempo is a concept that relates mana costs. You know, in in, in think about what we've been talking about thus far so mana cost as well as mana advantage um with card advantage and specifically i would i would go so far as to say card advantage on the board um so put in simpler terms it's it's essentially just the pace of the game um and and like that kind of just speaks to what the word itself actually means if you think of it like in a musical context for example um Mm -hmm. so like we can look at some of our previous examples and we can analyze them from this perspective. This relationship between mana costs and, and card advantage. Um, and, and also the pace of the game. The relation between, between those two things. So let's, let's come back to Wrath of God. I think that's a good one. Um, I think that the example that we gave before of getting that three for one against an opponent only tells one side of the story and it's only one part of that equation we were talking about um the other aspect of it is that a card like a wrath of god or you know a toxic deluge if we're talking more in the context of cedh um these are things that can not only be a major source of card advantage because you can get like that three for one that we talked about but they can also be an enormous source of tempo advantage um if especially if they're playing that strategy that's reliant on having all those creatures in play um you know an aggro deck perhaps in the context of modern or standard um or perhaps like uh hate bears strategy in the context of cedh um so wrath of god can be an enormous setback for an opponent's tempo you've essentially spent four mana and one card to you know deal with multiple of their cards and in a lot of situations you're getting more than four mana in that trade if you are hitting like a thought, well, maybe Thalia is not the best example because then you're paying five mana for your Wrath of God. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you're hitting like an Eidolon of Rhetoric, if you're hitting a Sanctum Prelate, and if you're hitting also a Lavinia, sorry, Callahan, um, in the deal. Yeah. And, we you know, can't yeah. have an episode without <laughs> somebody bringing it up, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at that point, you've destroyed eight mana worth of stuff for your four mana. So, right. Your, your inputs have had a disproportionate output, right? Like disproportionate effect on the board state. So just here, you can right. see an amazing example that relates mana costs, card advantage. And I think does a, and I think tempo is that thing that really 
unites it all together. Right. It's it. You're 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 looking at the kind of the long term investment of resources. You know, turn after turn after turn, you have players that are spending their resources. That they, you know, you you've got some number of creatures and enchantments and artifacts and and whatever board presence each player has, and in a, in a lot of cases, the you know the 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 collected you know cost of all of those things is is more than what that player can can deploy in a single turn. So you know it, it's it's this uh, amount that they've invested over you know this aggregated series of turns and being able to just eliminate that you know their their wrath of god is 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 one type of, of of way to do that and there's other ways that we can do that too um setting setting them back in that way is you know s- setting them back to to a point where they, they they can't come back to where they were in just one turn mm-hmm. and if you can find ways to break parity with that i mean you know looking at agrolists that use manlands for instance where you know you're using a you know a, a, a wrath and you know that you've got a couple of your your your, your manlands that are going to survive that you can continue to you know bash away with um, you're you're minimizing the impact of that loss of investment so you're you're you're, you're breaking parity with the the exchange that took place there and um, you always want to be weighing that when you're in game, looking at uh, making a play that is going to impact the tempo of, of, of each of the players. You, you, you want to see how you can um, make it such that you come out ahead in the exchange that takes place. Wait, so let me get this straight. You're saying that in deck building, I can make certain decisions intended to counter decisions that my opponents have made in their deck building i mean in deck building for sure but also you know when you're playing in the table there, there's this, there's two layers absolutely for sure this is mind-blowing um, and stuff. yes I, i'm 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 getting <laughs> your, your sarcasm here, but you know it, it's one of those things that um it it, it happens at, at, at both layers inside and outside the game oh i think and, it's an incredibly important point and i think that when we're talking about deck building, which we obviously are, it explains so many choices that people make in their deck building. So, it, you know, right. it, it, it's worth saying. Um, right. I think that, you know, it's it's just, it's, it's one of those things where um, sometimes deck building choices, you know, to your point, sometimes deck building choices don't make sense to people on the outside. Um, if you're fully invested in a particular format, then a particular deck building choice um, the reason for it can be totally lost on you compared to somebody who understands that format really, really well and then sees that particular choice and says, oh, okay, that card is in there because it's a good, you know, sort of like meta type pick. You know, they're playing that because they want to, like you said, to your point, they want to offset the potential tempo loss of this commonly played card in the format. Um, so, you know, that's a great example. Um, I think in terms of other examples that we already brought up and in terms of other examples that I think really illustrate this tempo concept super, super well, um, you know, thought seizes, which we mentioned before. Um, so historic or classically, actually, when people discuss thought seize, what gets brought up all the time is the fact that it's negative tempo, uh, for the person casting it. 
um, what that means is that you're spending mana and you're not like really getting anywhere um think about it you're not putting a creature into play so you're not like you're not getting any closer to winning the game you're spending a card and a mana and you're taking away one of your opponent's cards and your opponent can spend their mana and remaining cards to just play something on the board and start kicking your ass um and you know from a certain perspective that's like a better thing to be doing um however you know if we look at thought when it's at its very best um, what you can see is that it is capable of representing a very significant relative tempo advantage, you know, when it's taking away that crucial card that we were kind of talking about before. Um, I don't know if most of our viewers will necessarily be familiar with this new, <laughs> this new combo and standard, but, you know, if we take like the tip and modern trickery, and, and legacy, and and modern, and <laughs> actually, you know what, I guess, I guess you should be aware of it. <laughs> it's it's in every it, format. Yeah, it's in every format. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be in every format forever, you know, because I feel like it, you know, maybe it's flavor of the month, but I digress. Um, you know, imagine this new Tibalt's Trickery deck in standard or, or in historic or whatever, um, or modern. <clears throat> you know, this is a deck that mulls, mulligans aggressively to try to find its combo. And, you know, typically that means it has very, very few cards in hand, but that's okay mm -hmm. because this deck only needs very little mana and then it plays this one card and it gets an incredibly disproportionate impact out of this card. You know, the efficiency of this, the, what ends up being the efficiency of this card, or what this card's, this, what the efficiency this card achieves in that shell is incredible. And I'm not going to get too, too much into it right now because we're going to touch on this It's incredibly disproportionate to what other cards similar do. Right, and incredibly disproportionate to what the card is intended to do, but that's a different conversation. Right. Um, <laughs> if you thought sees that card that they desperately needed in their hand, um, then you're setting them back enormously. Yeah, um, you know I, they, I, they might just lose on the spot. Yeah, I've I've had because I play a lot of historic on arena, and uh, I play you know I kind of flip back and forth between like Teamer Marvel and uh, Soul Tide mid range. And when I'm playing Soul Time Midrange and I thought sees these Tybalt decks, uh, I've had people in response to my thought sees just scoop because they don't want to show you what they have. And then like the next game do their thing because they're on the play. And then the next game I'll thought sees them and then they'll scoop. And it's just like these decks fold immediately to any sort of disruption. Yeah. Right. Something that that's, I maybe uh, to take that like a little bit even further, um, the card bitter ordeal. Okay, so bitter yeah. ordeal is you know a three mana sorcery that has grave storm. So for every permanent that went to any graveyard that turn, uh, you get to copy it that many times, and you go and exile something from somebody's uh, library for for each instance of that card. Um. You know, we, we, we can look at thought sees and say that, you know, this is, you, you know, you're, you're losing a card, your opponent's losing a card, and you're not impacting the board in any way. In the case of Bitter Ordeal, you're spending a card and you're not impacting any other player's hand and you're not impacting the board. But yet, there is still, there's still value to this card because um, when 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 we're talking about action economy, I'm 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 being really intentional when I say meaningful action. Can opponent mm -hmm. take meaningful actions? So, if 
and we, we see this a lot in CDH. You, you see a lot of um, highly optimized lists that are, you know, very, very slim in what their win condition package might be. Um, if you can, uh, you know, let's say that you have nine copies of Bitter Ordeal and you can go in and exile three cards from, from each of your opponents, um, in a lot of cases, that, that's going to be enough to eliminate their, you know, their I win cards from, from, from each of those lists. And they might still have access to combos or they might still have access to, you know, their, their ad nauseums or, you know, the other, the, the big engine pieces. But the, the cards that actually say I win are going to be gone from those lists, in which case they can still take board actions, but their meaningful board actions are much diminished. So there's, there's the, the very tangible concrete layer to look at where we're talking about cards that are in play, cards in people's hands. Um, then there's kind of this more abstract layer, and uh, we don't need to go too much more into this. But it's worth noting right. that if you can take away people's meaningful uh, activity towards their game plan such that they can't act on their game plan anymore, that is a huge setback. Um, does it qualify as tempo in this case? Maybe not for this particular uh, definition, but uh, it's, it's still worth being part of the conversation because that's germane to what we're talking about. Right. Yeah, it's. I mean, especially in the context of CEDH, where it's very difficult to subsequently lose to beats. So tempo oftentimes, and, and we're going to talk about this later, obviously, tempo oftentimes inevitably gets wrapped up in term, into... Um, winning with combos um, and and you know how fast you're able to given you know your access to resources uh, pull off your combo um, you know something like bitter ordeal or jester's cap or something like that you know I do think that they can they can be understood in that framework of tempo in like CDH specifically um, and they can be understood somewhat similarly to for example like Thoughtseize or Chalice of the Void um, where you know, they, they're super negative tempo for you, but right. conceivably they can be very backbreaking for other people's tempo. In my experience, though, if you're going to have nine copies of Bitter Ordeal and take everyone else's win condition, you know, they're all going to just start beating you down. <laughs> and then now all of a sudden, like they're just going to try to ruin your game and like they're going to point all their well, counter spells I, I didn't at you. say that it's it's the thing to do. Yeah, I didn't yeah, say yeah. that that's, like, you know, <laughs> hey, everybody, well, you should use this card. So one thing that I personally want to touch on, too, is because when we talk about this like negative tempo, right, um, and specifically wrapped around the card Chalice of the Void, um, you know, we think, you know, because I'm sure a lot of people are think sitting here, you know, I, I know at one point me as a magic player goes, well, why the hell would you play that? Because it stops you from casting cards at that CMC, too. Right. Like, um, but you know, you have to think about it. You look at a deck like Mono Red Prison in Legacy, right? Uh, it plays the Chalice of the Voids, Trinosphere, all that jazz. And its top end is like, we're going to slow the game down through these effects. And then we're going to basically grind out value through our creatures, through our planeswalkers we play. I don't know if it still plays Koth of the Hammer and all that stuff. I haven't paid attention to it too much. Um, 
but you know, like when we talk about like Chalice of the Void, right? Pongo and or or Cobble, whoever, you know, like what is the advantage there? Because this this is a drawback to you as well. Well, like we said, we're 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 evaluating these things both in game and during deck building. So right. I personally, in the CEDH context, I I I like Chalice of the Void, especially on one and and on two, uh, because of you know the demonstrable effect that it has uh given that uh you know if if you take somebody off of one and two you know with like a sanctum prelate or something like that you're it for most decks that's that's more than 50 percent of their cards and um that's just that it's huge but like you said it's symmetric so you need to build in ways into your deck to be able to break parity with that effect so you know, in some cases, that's things like Allosaurus Shepherd or um, uh, Destiny Spinner or that kind of thing where you, you make your spells uncounterable or you shift the, 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 the cost of the spells that you're using. So, um, you know, if, if the, 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 the main interaction or, you know, the, the, the main removal that you're expecting in a metagame is, is all at one CMC, but you know that you're going to be playing Chalice on one, then maybe instead of using the most efficient or, you know, quote unquote, best pieces for, the, for, for, for those types of uh, behavior, you instead use the ones that are at, at, at two instead, because you're expecting your game plan uh, to incorporate the fact that nobody's going to be able to cast things on one. So you're making decisions outside of the game to be able to make that a, a tenable design choice. Right. I, I want to return to our equation from before, because I think that yeah. this sheds a lot of light on this question. Um, you know, if we look at cards like Chalice of the Void and Trinisphere in particular, and if we look at like, you know, um, Red Prison as sort of our context, you know, what a lot of stacks and like prison style decks are trying to do is they're trying to make efficient cards inefficient and inefficient cards efficient you know ponder as an example or force of will as another example um you know they they might have relatively minor effects on the game in terms of outputs but that can that can be fine if you know you're inputting very very little mana you know small input relatively small output is okay and i think I think that I'm kind of underselling them. <laughs> I think that um, they, they actually have a disproportionately good output, which is why people typically play them and why we call them efficient. But if you're having to pay three mana for those effects, all of a sudden, like, they're not disproportionately good anymore. In fact, all of a sudden, they're not good enough anymore. <laughs> um, and red deck, like that red prison deck, what it does instead is it plays three and four drops because they cost the same through Trinisphere. But... At three mana, your expected output from a card is much, much higher. Um, you know, if right. a card is efficient at three mana, it's going to be a lot better than your typical one drop is. Um, that's just good game design. But so basically, you know, you've made those inefficient cards efficient because you've made, you've redefined what efficiency is in that particular right. game. Because you're, in, and, and all of that is hinged on your opponent's being mostly on cards that are less than three mana right so mm -hmm. by doing yeah. that you are breaking the parity um of the value the ratio that people are getting from their resources in to their results out so right by 
by you know anticipating the expectation of other people's deck design or known deck design, you can um, you know tilt all of the the, the advantages into you know uh, towards yourself, such that you're able to being be able to in, engage in a, in a more efficient and have a much higher economy of mm-hmm. of a, of action in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, kind of last in these things, you know, before we move on to kind of the next portion of this is, you know, we've talked about Wrath of God. We talked about Thoughtseize. We talked about Chalice of the Void. But one card that, you know, we kind of think of in this tempo uh, scenario and kind of going back to Legacy just for a minute uh, is Wasteland. And this is a card that you see a lot where you're kind of like selectively taking them off of mana. So like, you know, wasteland, you're losing a land, right? Because you're, you have to play the land and then you have to use that to blow something up. Um, But, you know, there's advantages to that. Like you're able to turn off some of the mana that your opponents might have. Right. Or they might not be able to play their three drops anymore because now they're stuck on two lands. Um, you know, if you're mana screwing, essentially, if you're you get into a game, you know, you just like shuffle up, draw seven cards, and your opponent never plays a land and never plays a card. That's the ultimate form of card and tempo advantage. <laughs> like literally, right. not at your opponent taking no actions in the game, um, and wasteland can have that effect, right? Um, you know, kind of similar to like uh, cards that make opponents discard cards at random. Um, you know, if you can make your opponent discard cards at random and they like randomly discard their two lands in hand it's like the exact same effect they're like suddenly mana screwed um so like yeah i think that that's essentially just the ultimate form of tempo um what you know we're i think probably going to be touching upon especially when we're talking about tempo decks in particular tempo decks specifically um we're going to talk about how you kind of offset that sort of pseudo negative tempo that's mm-hmm. that you get from spending a land to destroy an opponent's land. Um, you know, how do you offset that? Because um, you know, I, I, like like Cobble was kind of getting at before. You know, you, you're making choices in deck building to make sure that you can do that, and you can make sure that it's really, really good. Right. So you know, when we are looking at tempo. And like, what is what what is a tempo play? You know, we've we've talked about like all these things. So like when we talk about like classic tempo plays, like what are the things people are talking about the most? Yeah, I think up until now, we've talked about how, you know, most cards can be understood as tempo plays. Um, And I think for a lot of people who are perhaps like just learning about tempo, just learning about the archetype that can be already quite eye opening. But like. I think before we get into a conversation about like what tempo decks are, it might be valuable to discuss some of these, you know, as you put it, these classic tempo plays, um, because these are the types of plays that are most often brought up in discussion centered around tempo. And hopefully, you know, in talking about these and relating them back to the examples we just talked about, um, we'll kind of have, you know, everything will kind of click into place, especially once we finally start talking about tempo decks themselves. Um, so these classic tempo plays, I would say more often than not, uh, focus on sort of the mana advantage aspect of, of tempo, uh, especially when we're talking about like disruptive tempo. 
um, rather than like potential card advantage aspects. Um, especially when you consider that like a lot of tempo plays are just card disadvantage um, and like fundamentally they're just mana advantage uh, because you're spending a card for, you know, some, again, advantage in terms of the pace of the game. Um, so looking at modern, like historically, a very good example would be a card like Remand, which is like some people, you know, consider this like the poster child of Tempo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in particular, Remand is really good when you get to Remand a card that costs more mana than Remand itself. Um, so if we talk about like, you know, a deck, I guess I don't even know that it really exists much anymore. But, uh, you know, back in the day when people used to play like modern Delver of Secrets and, uh, you know, used to play with you know a deck that doesn't exist any at all anymore but like modern splinter twin um which was kind of like a tempo combo deck um, pour, pour one out for the homies <laughs> pour, pour one out for splinter twin uh free free twin but um you know imagine getting to cast a creature for i don't know for one mana like your delver of secrets specifically um and then you're also holding up your remand and Imagine now that your opponent plays a three mana spell and you just get to remand that to their hand. Um, mm-hmm. You've spent two mana to kind of answer, quote unquote, their three mana card. And you also got to develop your own threat. Um, remand, you know, in this case, remand replaces itself in the process. I don't know that we would play remand if it didn't. So like it's, you know, especially in the um, like more uh, kind of combo-y context, you know, you're digging a little bit further in. Uh, and you're making sure that you continuously replace um, your cards in hand so that you can keep pulling off these types of plays. Um, right. We can say that you know you kind of almost got to cast a time walk in in modern because you're you essentially negated your opponent's turn. Um, you're still kind of at card parity. I mean, technically they got to draw a card. It's not as good as time walk, but you know, I think remand if it was as good, at, it, it you know. Time walks on the reserve list. Remand's not well, on the let reserve me, list. Time let me frame it this way, card. though, because <laughs> sure. if I frame it this way, so you know we're we're playing modern. I'm playing blue red Delver. You're playing Jund, and let's say this is old Jund before the whole you know Cascade nonsense. Um, you know, you you cast your Liliana of the Veil. I remand it back to your hand. I draw a card. I've now effect, and then you go to your next turn. You draw a card. You play a land. Then you play your Liliana. I've effectively made your Liliana worth cost six mana yeah, over two turns. Exactly. They have to spend more mana to deploy their cards, um, and you've spent less relative mana. So you know that's kind of like the mana advantage aspect of disruptive tempo. Like a lot of the time, people you know do like to talk about getting an advantage in terms of being able to spend mana, in terms of being able to. Um, you know, have greater efficiency than your opponent as far as like your plays relative to theirs, making their plays less efficient, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, obviously we talked about how sometimes it's just a question of, of getting a massive amount of card advantage and disrupting their tempo that way. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we can also talk about situations where you're not necessarily replacing the card in the process. Um, when it comes to like classic tempo plays and like more examples of classic tempo plays, um, you know, a lot of the time we talk about things like bounce spells. Um, mm-hmm. These get brought up a lot in discussions of tempo um, because they're 
in a lot of situations, card disadvantage because you're spending a card to only temporarily answer an opponent's thing. But ideally, you're spending, again, like with the example with Remand, less mana than they spent on their spell in the first place, such that, you know, like you said, you know, their Liliana or, or their three drop creature suddenly costs like six mana to play instead of three mana. And, you know, to have it stay on the board and to do the thing that it's doing. Um, you know, if we take Cyclonic Rift as as an example, you know, on its two mana mode, not fantastic, especially if you're like hitting something that costs very little. Decent when you're hitting something that costs more than it, you know, but disgustingly good when <laughs> you're playing it for seven mana and resetting everybody else's board completely and probably hitting a lot more than seven mana worth of stuff, especially if we're talking about like EDH, not competitive EDH, but like you know, more casual context where people are playing, you know, four or five mana cards and, and beyond, um, you know, suddenly spending seven mana to answer all of that, even temporarily, you know, in many, many situations, you know, and, and you speak to people who play EDH, more casual EDH, and they'll say that, like, that happens and, like, the Cyclonic Rift player inevitably wins. And, like, people hate that card because... They don't win right away. <laughs> like they, right. just, they will eventually win because of how big of a tempo swing that was. Um, but, but you kind of still have to suffer through it. <laughs> um, you, you know, you have to like wait for them to eventually actually close out the game. But like, man, you know, spending seven mana and temporarily answering, you know, potentially twenty plus mana worth of stuff—that's efficient. That's incredible. But um, again, and the fact that it's asymmetric too. And well, right. yeah, exactly. It would not be nearly as good if it was symmetrical because suddenly you're impacting your own tempo. Um, right. But, you know, you know, that's, I guess, speaking to your point where like most of these most of these plays, you want them to be uh, asymmetrical to some extent. Um, right. But, you know, to return to like that, the previous examples we were giving before, because, you know, we talk about bounce spells a lot. We talk about things like remand and sure, like these are classic, you know, for your blue tempo decks, which you see a lot. But like, you know, these are, you know, this is not just like where tempo starts and ends. You know, even a card like Fatal Push can be hugely impactful on tempo if you spent one mana to answer their three drop cleanly, right? Like, it's not just these right. blue cards. It's not just temporarily answering things. It goes well beyond that. And I think that, you know, to some extent, this is like where, where people, where, where they're thinking about tempo kind of starts and, and ends. And it's it's largely because you know the um, the more the like the good examples of tempo decks tend to be blue decks, so they tend to be relying on these types of effects um, to answer things because that's just what their part of the color pie does, um, and you know this is just what they have access to. So you know we we don't necessarily always talk about tempo in other contexts when we should. Um, but, you know, I think we can probably talk about, like, actual tempo decks <laughs> uh, and what those right. look like, right? Um, we can, so, yeah. Yeah, so, like, when we're, we're talking about it, you know, I brought up, like, mono blue tempo earlier. Um, but, you know, what is, you know, a, a tempo deck? Sure. Um, so, I, we could talk about, I think, multiple very very related decks that you know like archety archetypally related you know on the one hand a tempo deck 
you know, you've got the classic examples of like the aggro control decks, and we'll talk about those. But like, you know, I think that it, it's first valuable to talk about like the pure aggro decks. Um, so what pure aggro decks do is they play typically many, many cheap creatures, and the efficiency they're looking for is in terms of the stats on those creatures. So, you know, you want to play like a one mana card that has at least two power, ideally. If it has haste, even better, because then, you know, you're getting in those beats really quickly. And when, especially in 20 life contexts, you know, a lot of the time discussions of tempo will center around beats, which is, you know, getting your opponent dead quickly. Um, and like the pressure that you're putting on your opponent is almost synonymous with what tempo is in those contexts, because that's just how you're planning on winning the game. Um, so, so you're he, you're yeah. you're you're categorizing your your action economy in terms of damage that you can be doing to your opponent, right? And and you're converting mana and cards into damage at the best possible rate. Um, and so that's where you're getting efficiency. Um, and and again, the tempo that you're applying is in trying to get a better rate in doing that than your opponent is getting in the things that they're doing. So. You know, you play many cheap creatures, you're getting in damage, ideally. You know, if they're spending mana and cards to answer your creatures, probably they're not getting a fantastic rate on it, especially if they're trading one for one. If they can do that up until the point where they can, like, wipe your board with a four-drop board wipe, and they can hit multiple things, then that's when they're going to flip the tempo around. That's when they're going to gain a massive tempo advantage um, relative to, you know, like what you've been doing up until that point. Um, and in a lot of situations, that's going to be because of a card exchange, not because of a mana exchange, which is the interesting thing, right? Um, right. Where, you know, sometimes tempo is not just about mana. It can also be about cards. But, you know, we have right. been talking about it in terms of mana up until now. Um, you know, what these decks are trying to do is they're trying to maintain that tempo advantage up until the point where their opponent is dead. That's what we can say about aggro decks. And, you know, if they lose things along the way you know it sucks you know sucks to to lose your your savannah lions and stuff like that but you know you're you're just going to keep playing the next one and the next one until hopefully your opponent is gone um but i think you know it, it it's probably worth talking about like the quintessential tempo decks now um right. which we call in many situations like aggro control decks um so you know useful to see that aggro remains part of the the conversation but now we're bringing control into it so we're combining you know what we just talked about you know in terms of proactive tempo sort of like in aggro decks um and we're combining it with the reactive aspects of tempo which i think is like what we've been talking about pretty much up until this discussion on aggro decks right so yeah why don't and, we talk and about- i go ahead it really the deck that I feel like personifies it in my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but is the mono blue tempo deck that Autumn Burchette won uh what was it Worlds A with? Years ago. Yeah. Like that list is in my mind like the like prototypical aggro control list where, you know, I'm I'm looking at exactly her list right now. Um, you know, there there's stuff like there where you're playing Miscloaked Herald. It can't be blocked. You're playing Siren Storm Tamer, Merfolk, Trickster, but you're playing stuff like Dive Down, Spell Pierce, uh, all these like control effects and curious obsession, and you're just trying to like out 
value your opponent and keep them really locked down. Um, and that the, perhaps I'm wrong, but that's really what I think of when I talk about like when I when somebody brings up like an aggro control tempo deck. Yeah, you're you're essentially just trying to have substantially higher card velocity than they do, right? Um, you're trying to play something like a cheap creature such that you're attacking, you know, early and a lot. Uh, and like you mentioned before, cards like Dive Down make it so that your opponents attempt to answer, you know, your thing that's in there dealing damage um, tend to be less successful, <laughs> to, put it, right. to put it lightly. Things like Spell Pierce do the same. Um, but obviously Spell Pierce kind of doubles as disruption for an opponent's sort of proactive plan if that's what they're doing Uh, ideally as the tempo deck what you would like to see is that your opponent is trying to kind of react to you like you want to be the one putting the pressure on them you want to keep them on the back foot um and you know you just kind of have all the answers to protect your 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 card in play the thing that's clocking them and the thing that's putting the pressure on them um so they're getting ahead, you know, way ahead sometimes in that early action, uh, game action economy. That's, you know, what tempo decks do. And typically, you know, if we're looking at like the more, let's say, high power versions of these decks, like in Legacy, um, you know, they're really just maximizing like cheap and free cards. Um, and the problem with these cards is that they don't necessarily scale super well into the later game. I think that this also applies to the um the mono blue tempo deck from standard where you know like pound for pound their cards are not as powerful your siren storm tamer is not right. going to be as good as oh i don't know like a siege rhino or something um but like you know if you wait a just, minute <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong standards but uh but you know if you can just kind of keep that in play and you can keep exerting pressure and you can keep tripping up your opponents every time they might try to do something that is going to keep you um, from having the initiative, then hopefully you're going to win before, you know, they they're finally able to to answer that. Um, right. I, I think that, you know, these classic tempo decks, um, you know, they're aggro control decks, which kind of like just in, in the name itself kind of firmly puts them into the camp of being blue to a large extent. Um, and typically you know you're you're playing counter spells and stuff like that like you said um i think that you know we could probably talk about two broad categories of aggro control decks which are like the mono blue uh control type decks like the legacy delver type decks these are like the protect Mm -hmm. the queen strategies um Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily playing like a whole lot of threats but you know what they're trying to do is have like a pretty high quality threat um, in the mono blue control case, um, I think like curious obsession, like those types of cards, right. curiosity, whatever, um, those effects make their threats higher quality. Um, it makes it more painful to lose that card if you can't extract value from it. Right. Cause you might get two for one. Um, right. But you know, you, you play kind of with what the cards, your, your format give you access to. Um, so you're, you're putting a lot of investment into one card. Um, 
or you know maybe not even that much investment if we look at something like delver um which is just kind of a, a broken card um and you're kind of just trying to ride that one card to victory and then the vast majority of your deck is going to be disruption from that point on uh alternatively you can look at like what are called fish strategies and that kind of harkens back to like merfolk which is it at its core is also a tempo deck it's closer to the aggro side of the equation than the control side of the equation and that's kind of where these two diverge from one another you know the fish strategies and it's not just all merfolk you know in in vintage sometimes we also call decks fish decks and they don't play any any merfolk i mean like human humans would be like one of those decks too yes in modern and we call that a fish deck too it's it's not unheard of for people to refer to that as a fish deck, especially in vintage. Actually, I think I've seen <laughs> I've seen vintage human decks being referred to as fish, which is really funny. Um, and these are decks that you know, like the Merfolk deck, they play a way higher density of threats. And you know, individually, those threats might not be that good, um, but you know, you start playing a bunch of them, and like they become really really good um and you know you're kind of just trying to draw into more and more threats such that you know your opponent can't possibly answer them all and eventually you just win that way but naturally like you're also playing disruptive elements right you have to be doing that to uh, attack their attempts to stop you from applying pressure or to interact with the type of decks that just won't care about your plan at all which is a whole other type of tempo deck that i think we can probably talk about Right. Um, so, you know, Speaking you talked. Oh, sorry. You know, you, you had mentioned protect the queen um, and, you know, just tempo in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking as a Najila player, the most common or the, the, the popularized Najila list for a long time was called Najila tempo. Um, do you feel that that is a uh, misappropriation of that name or do you feel like that's also playing on the same archetype? Um, I have, was never a fan of that name, if I'm being completely honest <laughs> with you. Uh, I think, you know, it was more applicable back in the day when that deck was, like, way more all-in on Najila to win. You know, before we got first Jace, um, Wielder of Mysteries, and then Thassa's Oracle, and then, you know, other stupid things that we can do in the format that kind of just like fit into any possible deck you would want. Um, like right. Hull Reacher, for example, you know, um, or, or Underworld Breach, you know, kind of whatever you want. Ad Nauseam fitting into whatever deck you want because of Dockside Extortionist. Anyway, I digress. Um, back when that deck was way more focused on Najila, it was probably truer because your win depended on you sticking Najila and kind of protecting her. Um, and preventing your opponents from winning until you could have your win. But, you know, where it falls flat as an analogy is that Najil is a combo piece, first and foremost, trying to combo with, you know, one-card win conditions. Um, and you kind of just want to protect those, like any other combo deck in CEDH. You just want to use your counter spells to, like, make sure they stick and then win through a combo. You're, like, not right. actually as, like, a primary plan beating people down trying to apply pressure trying only to disrupt their game plans um i just think that you know it's kind of unfeasible to expect that as a consistently good game plan when you have to deal 120 damage even if najila can do that in you know five turns potentially um cdh games are just like so fast 
that like that mm-hmm. right often isn't actually going to be uh feasible you know speaking for myself i've played many games with Nigila, and while i have taken players out of the game many many times i don't i think i can count on like one hand how many games i just won purely through beats maybe maybe two hands right. but we're talking about hundreds of games <laughs> right my 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 point here was just to to illustrate that it it's it's good to understand um the archetype as far as tempo and how how it relates to efficiency kind of in in in, in the general sense but um as far as applicability directly um, in in the CEDH context, um, it's 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 maybe not going to 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 be that sensible to to try to reproduce that type of archetype. Yeah, as an um, archetype for within sure. the framework. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, you know the reason why I kind of like still use that name despite my distaste for it is that the deck now is just too closely associated to that name like the branding is Mm -hmm. stuck it was good branding (laughs) at the time excellent branding um and and now it's just like that type of thing where it's it's kind of grown beyond your ability to control it well (laughs) and and one thing and and i don't want to get too far into this right now because it's kind of off topic but one thing and this is something we've talked about you know privately a little bit before is how you know, these archetypical discussions that we're talking about, like tempo, the archetype of tempo and aggro and combo and all those things. When you're talking about them within the lens of CEDH, you kind of have to shift what they mean a little bit because the way of the format is they can't be exactly that way. Right. Because right. it's just not plausible uh, most of the time. So and, and we've had tons of discussions about this privately and and i'm sure we're going to do a video about this eventually so i don't want to you know stick on that too long but it is important to note that i i I think within the context of cedh i felt feel like stock nagila tempo like feels about like as close to blue red delver as it gets right yeah like it, it it's about as close as you're gonna replicate that sort of effect in in cedh um but you know when you're talking protect the queen and uh, the, like I said with Delver, that's kind of like the prototypical protect the queen deck, right? Is like blue red legacy Delver, but probably before Oko, Oko and before Dreadhorde Anarchy or Arcanist. Man, that deck has really changed, hasn't it? Jeez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Which, you know, we can, I think we'll probably get into, you know, how that deck has changed and why it's changed. You know, when we a little bit further into this conversation, um, but yeah, it's it's changed tremendously. But I think that like, um, you know, like let, looking at like classic blue red Delver. Um, so obviously, like Oko's not in the conversation, and you know, I guess we could still talk about Dreadhorde within that shell. But like, I guess like traditionally we were talking about Young Pyromancer and stuff like that. Um, Arcanist feels like it's its own deck, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, Dreadhorde Arcanist is just an absurd magic card for a variety of reasons. Yes. But you know, that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Um, you know, I think that in many ways that you know, like like you put it, like this is the prototypical protect the queen deck, the prototypical tempo deck, and in, it's also just like the very model of efficiency. Wait, hold on, what? This <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the teamer deck 
Delver list right now, like the one on MTG Goldfish. It plays Hooting Mandrels? Well, so that's not that bizarre because that's a one drop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that didn't used to be I, in the deck, though, angle did it? Of, of looking at efficiency. Yeah. Is, that's wild. You know, I mean, look yep. at Gurmag Angler in like, you know, back in the day. Same yeah, I guess it's true. I, probe. Um, you know, they're one drops there. Those are tempo cards because you're playing a yeah. bunch of really cheap, efficient cards. Just, you know, kind of by definition of being a tempo deck. And then you're converting resources, a.k.a. cards in the graveyard into mana. So right. like that's that's kind of like what I was getting at before when I was saying, you know, resources in like other zones or like kind of more niche resources like life total, like they, they tend to be converted into more fundamental resources like either cards or mana. Um, but but yeah, that's neither here nor there. Um, right, right, right. So like, I, I was just looking at the list and was like confounded because I saw that and I was like, <laughs> what in the world? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, anyway, it, like I remember the first time I saw Gurmag Angler and Grixis Delver back when um, Kataxian Probe was legal and I was like, I don't get yeah. it. And then I saw that deck play and I was like, I get it. <laughs> this makes so much yeah. sense. This is a one drop card. This is not a, right. yeah. Oh, a one mana five five is a good card. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, like, you know what what are these decks doing right they're they're playing cards that generally cost no more than you know one or two mana you know like gurmag angler <laughs> which is a one drop um and they're playing like all kinds of like free and cheap counter magic as we were saying before right. to protect their threats uh, or you know in the context of legacy what's really important is you know the fact that there's many many proactive decks in that format um and there's right. many many decks that uh, are not looking to play kind of like a fair game of magic where they're going to deal three damage to every turn and and kill you over the course of six seven turns um you know they're they're going to kill you in one turn doing something really broken but uh so you know right. you, you get to use your counter magic as disruption for their win attempts uh or their tempo we could say um and then you're also playing uh especially in like the blue red shells removal spells that only cost a single mana if we're talking about like lightning bolt or chain lightning um, and the nice thing about these is that they also double as direct damage which means that you're kind of speeding up your beats your own tempo your ability to close out the game um, and then you know what else are you playing you're playing cantrips cantrips as we discussed in the last episode they provide consistency to your deck they let you have access to whatever you may need in the moment it's like having virtual redundancy for every single card in your deck not just you know the four copies that you already have for your deck um and you know rounding it all up you're playing things you know in this deck at least um you know you're playing wastelands because if you're playing if you're paying only one to two mana for like most of your plays um you know you can afford to give up a land drop and potentially just kind of win on the spot by cutting somebody off of you know like right. let's say their their red source or whatever you know kind of like the example i was talking about before with him to turak where you might just get lucky and and completely screw somebody out of the game um you know like you just kind of get to do that for free and and the way you've built around it is by making sure that you're only ever paying one or two mana like for most of your spells if not zero mana in the case of like force of will and force of negation and stuff like that or days um right right an important thing to kind of look at here especially when you mention the word consistency in the context of you know this particular tempo list but also in in the context of you know the the, the greater whole you know thinking about um how efficiency 
and consistency are bound together in CEDH. Um, you can look at the opposite of efficiency and, and, and see what it does. So if, if your deck has inefficient cards in it, inefficiency creates variance, okay? So when you're looking at a, at a deck that's all one and two mana cards, then it's very, very efficient because, you know, your, your, your resources that you're expending are very, very small um, in terms of the, the outputs that you're getting from them. Um, and it's going to be consistent because you're always going to have the resources that you need to be able to, to pay those costs. Right. If instead you're, you're mixing in there uh, cards that are not efficient, then what you're doing is you're introducing variance, in which case there's a question as to whether or not you're always going to be able to have the resources needed to engage those cards. And when you have an elevated amount of variance, what you're doing is you're reducing your consistency. Right. Because now you're, you're introducing a, a question as to whether or not you're going to be able to be able to make the plays. Um, you know, in the, in the case of, you know, blue, you know, blue, red Delver, you're that that's never a question because of the efficiency. And thus the outworking of that is consistency. I think it's important to kind of, you know, draw not dotted lines, but, you know, straight Mm-hmm. bold lines <laughs> between those things to underscore why that stuff is so important and um, why you see the deck construction that we do in CEDH. And we'll get to that soon. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, to, to put a bow on that last point, um, you know, where you can occasionally get tripped up in legacy with that style of deck is in the fact that as like tempo deck or just as such a powerful format, as, as legacy is, you know, most of the time to win, you're going to need to like multi spell, which means cast multiple spells per turn. And so if you're struggling to like hit your land drops and stuff like that, sometimes it's going to be hard to, to cast multiple spells per turn, but it's almost never an issue to cast one spell per turn in a format like legacy, uh, where things cost like one mana or two mana. But oftentimes that's just not going to be enough. You know, you're, you're, need for tempo in a format like that dictates that you be able to cast multiple spells per turn. Right. Indeed. So, you know, we talked about tempo and we talked about um, how that can play a piece of card efficiency and on and all of that. But, you know, there's there's this whole other side of this that we we've kind of hinted at a little bit uh, behind everything is this idea of like combos and broken mechanics and you know when we're talking about this you know what are examples of this and you know how, how does this fit into like efficiency yeah um so we're we're kind of funneling back into cedh at long last we're, we're getting we're <laughs> getting there i know this has been very discursive but you know sometimes to make a point you need to what is it you need to break a few eggs or something but uh so <laughs> omelets yeah um so Let's talk a bit about combo decks, because I think combo decks can be very well understood in this framework of efficiency and and this framework of tempo extremely, extremely well. Um, I want to talk about storm decks for a second, because I think that's where we start uh, being most directly applied, perhaps, to uh, CEDH. And we'll talk about, like, another combo, just because why not? But um, I think storm decks are probably, like, the best example of taking this efficiency equation that we've been talking about before and just, like, taking it 
round back and just like kind of you know shooting it in the head um <laughs> just abusing it to its logical extreme um what do these decks do you know they tend to play an enormous density of rituals um which offer a very very clean way to circumvent one natural resource barrier inherent in magic and that's we're talking about mana production obviously you know what we were talking about before um, with you know this whole idea that magic was designed around playing one land per turn and you know playing things with kind of this natural curve, um, you know was not even true way back in the day when the best rituals in the game were printed. You know your Black Lotus and your Moxen. Um, <laughs> you know you're you're essentially very quickly producing, it, at least with these storm decks, uh, a type of feedback loop um, where you are essentially using your inputs to produce ever greater inputs. Um, so what I mean by that is your, your, your rituals, which are, you know, your card that you're playing as an input is generating mana. And as we talked about before, mana is an input. So your output is an input. So you're just constantly feeding your output back into your input stage um, until such time as you reach like a level of a critical mass of inputs. And when you reach that critical mass, typically with these types of decks, all you need is one last input to produce a game state, a desirable game state that we can we can succinctly summarize as, you know, your opponent's tempo has been reduced permanently to zero. To zero. <laughs> <laughs> and this is card velocity here because <laughs> you do this on turn one. Another good so- example... Yeah. Yeah. So what are like examples of, you know, that specifically? Yeah. Another good example of a combo deck doing a similar sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the reason why I kind of wanted to talk about this one is because I play this deck in Legacy is uh, is Reanimator. You're, you're the worst type of person. I'm not I just the worst type of person. I played, you are the worst. I played blue black Reanimator for a very long time when when black red <laughs> Reanimator was all the rage because I wanted to be a hipster, I guess. Um, but I think <laughs> <laughs> Legacy Reanimator is a great example of uh, how to abuse efficiency. Um, essentially, you know, if we talk about a card like Rizzlebrand, like getting to eight mana is usually, it takes a very, very long time or a, like a massive investment of deck slots to be able to do it quickly. It's like it's a drag, frankly, to, to pay eight mana for anything. So I have another proposition. What if we only paid two mana for Crystal Brand? How about it? Seems good. Seems all right. You know, you just cast an Entomb. You cast a Reanimate. <laughs> Furthermore, what if we, uh, you know, did this all on turn one by playing a Lotus Petal? You know, using fast mana rituals, you're you know, like a dark ritual or something. Oh, be to, honest, you played two lotus petals. Come on. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes <laughs> you just don't even have lands in hand. <laughs> you just had, kept the hand with two lotus petals and entomb and reanimate. Um, you're you're essentially using these rituals to further circumvent the the natural mana development system, as we talked about before. Um, and what does this do? Well, you know, unlike the storm deck, which like absolutely just you know maybe on turn one or on turn two wins the game deterministically by casting like a tendrils of agony, uh, which we sort of coyly were referring to before. Um, you know what you're doing here with reanimating Grizzlebrand for two mana. So doing it like on turn one or turn two, 
getting a 7-7 flying with lifelink that also draws seven cards on command, um, which is, you know, like giving you more fast mana and free spells because, of course, we're playing more free spells, right? Um, right. Like the tempo provided by that is so close to unbeatable that when it happens in a lot of situations, people just scoop. Like you just <laughs> have to reanimate the guy and he's just there and he shows up and he says hello and and then it's like everyone dips everyone you know people are like okay well game over you 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 got there even if you haven't deterministically won yet and i mean this isn't true in all cases this is less true now because people can for example you know counter it by you know playing their oko turning your grizzlebrand into an elk and like try to stabilize before you can combo again you know, it, it was never always true that people would would concede on the spot because like there are I, ways you know, to it, beat it. I I I'd play a similar deck in historic. I play a lot of like I said, I play a lot of team or Marvel. And when you you know land your Marvel and activate it, I've had people scoop when I'm still looking at the cards off right. the activation, and I'll be looking at the cards and I'm just like, well, there there's two of the mana dorks and a rogue refiner but you can scoop that's fine um <laughs> yeah i mean right. the amount of free games i won because like i get grizzlebrand down and like i had to do it with a reanimate for example so my life total is quite low let's say um you know i draw seven cards and my opponent is just like forget about it i'm i'm over it and like <laughs> it just turns out i just drew seven lands or like six lands in a dark ritual like right. the amount of times people have scooped to that and i'm like thank god because if you just had like a swords to plowshares like i don't think i was gonna win this game um you know it's it's kind of it's kind of blows my mind actually that that, that yeah. happens sometimes but you know i think those are the exception more than the rule which is why people do often concede to it right this mm-hmm. sheer advantage this sheer tempo advantage provided by cheating the mana curve um doing something completely broken well before it's supposed to happen um essentially getting a way more efficient grizzle brand right <laughs> because rather than paying putting an eight mana and a card into our into our um, equation we're putting in two mana and i guess we're putting in two cards but like whatever that extra card is, is whatever, you know, I, it, that's that extra mana, is, that extra card is six mana. So like, why not? <laughs> that's, that's a good ritual as far as I'm concerned. Um, and yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, other, other combo decks, when you kind of think of what they utilize and, you know, we talk about like broken mechanics, what are the things they utilize a lot are like free spells, right? Yeah, I have a great anecdote for this one. Um, So I think it was in 2018, somebody in the the Gila Discord made a post and it was literally, we were talking about Force of Will. We were just talking about how much we appreciate Force of Will as a card, like like how good it is, you know, like, oh, you feel really safe when you're holding Force of Will. And keep in mind, this is in 2018. So... This person replies, I can't wait to see Wizards of the Coast's next failed attempt at balanced free spells. <laughs> and keep in mind, this was before the printing of Force of Negation, Force of Vigor, Fierce Guardianship, Deflecting Swat, Once Upon a Time, Jeweled Lotus. All of these cards have since been printed. And each of these cards, I would say, has 
been printed much to the consternation of magic players. People think force of negation was a mistake for legacy in particular, because it's like, why Mm -hmm. did we need more forces? You know, people like it in modern because the power level of modern got pushed to such an extent that it, we, you know, the format needed more force. It it, it needed force force of negation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great card to have printed in modern horizons, but you know, in, in legacy, you know, speaking as a combo player, I'm like, ugh, like my life is so much harder because now they just have even more free interaction. Um, so fair decks get that much stronger. Um, you know, force of vigor might not seem problematic on its surface, but like player people in vintage think that that card was a mistake. Right. Yeah. Like force of vigor. To, to be fair, to be fair, <laughs> that, all, that format also has paradoxical outcome ba- or restricted too. So like their their threshold for what can possibly be a mistake is much higher. Yeah. And and the main reason for that, for Force of Vigor in particular in, in Vintage, is because um, it's such a clean way for some of the very, very degenerate kind of like graveyard oriented decks, like the Bazaar decks, Bazaar Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Um they can just spend a card and, and destroy two of your stacks pieces that you needed to play to fight them because those decks are inherently so strong and so consistent that you need to be playing things like Raftigger's Cage and you need to be playing things like Leyline of the Void to like possibly stand a chance. Um, you know, they they can just answer those very, very cleanly for no mana. So people consider Force of Vigor a mistake in Vintage. Um, not everyone, but I would say it's not a... And it's not an outlandish opinion. It's not like a super minority opinion or anything. Um, returning to CDH, Fierce Guardianship, Deflecting SWAT. I mean, I like these cards a lot, but I also play Najila, so it makes sense. Um, but, you know, <laughs> these are cards that push the power level of, like, very low casting cost commanders, um, push the power level of partners, like, because, you know, Thrasios only costs two mana, so, like... Um, and Timna only costs three mana, so like it's pretty easy to like develop those, and then suddenly have more free counter magic. Um, you know, I, I think that they're less problematic because we didn't have four Force of Wills to begin with. But you know, they they certainly have changed the format unbelievably. Jeweled Lotus, right. I think you know if you've been around recently and you were around when that card got spoiled you remember that everyone freaked out about that card i don't need to (laughs) to add more fuel to that fire um and i think that it has had a massive impact on the format as well in in terms of making like five mana commanders absurdly broken and, and giving four mana and three mana commanders some very commanding starts that kind of make some games into non games and then once upon a time i think everybody knows that that card was just a mistake like that card is just so stupid um <laughs> banned banned i wish it was just banned everywhere you know like oko <laughs> i wish that card could just be like stripped from the record somehow um but you know it's not and and obviously this applies less in cdh and it applies less in edh but you know if you follow other formats then you realize that once upon a time was such a such a problem yeah it's 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 important to it, I, I I think there was some clarity of, of mind uh, for that post that you were talking about where they're talking about uh, wizards failing to balance the free spells because that's important. No, there, there's no spell that's actually free. Right. So um, 
there, there's always some sort of trade-off. So if, if it's any, if anything that's in the force suite, you're looking at card disadvantage in order to get, you know, the, the efficiency of mana. Um, if you're looking at, uh, any, anything in the packed cycle, you're getting the efficiency of mana, but you're deferring it to later and you have to cast, you know, you have to pay that mana the next turn. Um, in the case of the, the the newest batch that came out, Fierce Guardianship, Deflecting Swat, and so on, um, by by pinning the stipulation or the constraint for being able to cast it for free, uh, being having a commander in play, which is is not a disadvantage. Like this is this is the first time that they 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 gave you the efficiency in a way that wasn't imposing a disadvantage, but instead is just synergizing with something that most lists want to be doing anyway. Like for instance, if you've got a, you know, mm-hmm. a Thrasios or a Timna list, you want to be playing them out early anyways. So there, there's, there's not actually a setback that is offsetting the, the value for the gain deficiency that you're getting in casting the spell for free. Right. But there is, and, there is something with fierce guardianship though, that I do think is worth, I, I, I think it is a balanced card in that it is balanced as far as all of magic is concerned. Uh, because you, you, you look, we were talking about like force of negation earlier, right? Where we were talking about how like force of negation was very needed in modern. So like it being printed right. into modern, it was very needed. And what they did really that I thought was very clever with fierce guardianship. And maybe they could have balanced it a little bit, but you, it will literally see no play outside of this format because it's so it, it's tied to the commander and so it's a way of 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 pseudo balancing it in a way so that it's like yes it's broken in commander but we're talking about the format where like soul rings legal and mana crypts legal so like okay is this the most broken thing that we're really doing there yeah i i I agree with that i think jessica is a great example of that too where that card would be so broken if it was not tied to casting commanders um because like triple damage with Delvers, right? Deal nine damage. Like, thank you very much. Like, all day I will do that. But but you can't play it in other formats. Um, right. You know, I I think. Ano- sorry, <laughs> I was just gonna say one last thing, which was you know if we're returning back to our um, equation of inputs and, and outputs, you know the problem with free spells is that. Um, you don't. You never have to input any amount of mana, which means that, you know, you're spending a card, but you're not inputting your any additional resource, which is very unlike most cards in Magic. Um, such that, if your output is really like anything that could be useful or something that you would want to have consistently, it's just inherently broken because mm-hmm. you've circumvented that system of. That, that essentially dictates the efficiency of cards. So when I right. think of Fierce Guardianship and as far as its power level, it is, in my opinion, as broken as Mox Opal is. Because it, it they both have like similar dictations to them, right? Um, they both have this, you need to achieve a certain game board state in order for this to function, right? So... Like Mox Opal, you can cast it, but unless that you're building around this metal craft where you're going to have lots of artifacts out, it there's no really reason to play it 
in so i mean we see this all the time in cdh right like there's there's plenty of lists where it's like if you're playing a certain density of of artifact spells you can play mox opal but if you're not you can't you know there's like a certain number you have to hit hit inner threshold where it becomes worth playing and fierce guardianship is one of these cards where if you so so if we scale it down to a commander like like lavinia where we're two colors it's two cmc's or two CMCs, Jesus, it's two CMC. It's really cheap to get out, has a good ability. That is the sort of deck that's going to need that spell slot, right? If we look at something like, uh, I don't know, Kenrith, for example, it's five CMC. It's going to be much harder to cast that in the same time span as you are Lavinia. And so obviously this, you know, Najila kind of breaks this a little bit. And there are some things that break this, obviously. But I, I, I think Fierce Guardianship is, a, I, I think it is about as broken. And this isn't to go too far, but I, I, I do. I think it's about as powerful as Mox Opal is in that you have to achieve a certain game state in order for it to function. And this is true. And it, it doesn't satisfy. So maybe, you know, coming back a little bit to kind of the, the, the grander efficiency discussion here um you know you we have been talking about you know why did why did modern need the forces you know why did it need force of negation and that uh and and how do we how do we connect that to efficiency so when you have everybody operating at a tempo that is so high where their velocity is so high that they are, you know, potentially, you know, doing a reanimator, you know, you know, reanimating, uh, not in modern, but, um, you know, if, if you can reanimate Grizzlebrand on turn one, or if you can, you know, execute some sort of combo where, you know, you're threatening to win on, you know, turn one or two, then in order to be able to contend with that level of efficiency, your interaction also needs to have that same level of efficiency and thus being able to interact for, for no mana investment at all is actually required in order for um, those, those, those formats to be balanced. So the, it's when the, the outworking of that means that that or this is the the explanation for the outworking of of why we see what cards we do especially in eternal formats so when we're looking at cedh lists we're going to see most of the interaction suites are going to be large you know you're you're always going to have force of will a lot of times you're going to have force of negation right um and then all of the other interaction spells are going to be one CMC because you need to have your interaction be at a level that is going to be able to contend with the speed of the uh, you know economy of action that every single list is is going to be threatening from from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, and so tying it's tying those things together explicitly is right. is, is worth doing. That's right. that's my point. Ab- absolutely. Um, you know, and so we, we, we talked about these free spells, uh, and, and how they relate, relate, excuse me, to efficiency, but so how does the cost? So like are cheap spells always equal, like do those two things always equal each other? Do cheap spells always equal efficient spells 
or are those two things not tangentially, you know, related? Yeah, great question. Um, I think I used that word right. Like <laughs> so, so you're right that up until now, I think we've just been extolling the virtues of cheaper spells. Like we've just right. been talking about how cheap spells are great. You know, we love cheap spells. We love free spells or, or hate free spells. Um, and I think you know that it's like it's easy to grasp that like a cheap spell is inherently going to be easier to reach that that sort of um, threshold for efficiency. Um, you know, when you're paying less mana, you don't need a card to be as impactful for it to be efficient, as I mentioned before. So, like, there's that, but then there's also what we've been talking about in terms of tempo and, like, multi-spelling and stuff like that. So, from the perspective of, like, card velocity or tempo, uh, cheaper spells, you know, they still also feel, like, way superior. Um... And kind of like what Cobble mentioned before, when spells cost less, you don't have to worry about the vagaries of luck. Um, you're right. pretty much always going to be able to cast one mana spells, um, but a five mana spell might give you problems. So, again, you know, none of this, uh, none of this is by accident, right? Like this whole conversation uh, only really makes sense from the perspective of like having a consistent deck. So certainly, you want your spells to be efficient, and you know, a big part of that. A uh, big part of reaching consistency is making sure that you're playing more spells that you're going to be able to cast consistently. But, you know, why would we ever play cards that cost three mana or more uh, if, if, you know, free spells are that much better? Well, so something I touched upon earlier and something I think we've just been touching upon a lot um, is that good design in Magic, you know, inherently dictates that cards that cost more mana can be more impactful um, because you're not going to consistently be able to do the thing that they do super fast, um, you know, because you either you have to develop your mana or, you know, um, you're not going to draw into enough mana sources, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, essentially we can say you need to input more resources for every given unit of output, you know, which is like an effect on the game, as we discussed before. Um, so like where more expensive cards can become more efficient is when we look at the other part of the input equation, which is that our number of cards being input into the equation doesn't change. The mana cost changes, but if we're not spending more cards relative to cheaper spells, then that can bring its own form of efficiency, um, especially if that one card that we're talking about at a higher mana cost potentially has a much greater effect, so a greater output. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we move on and talk about Wrath of God uh, again as our example, um, up until now we've been talking about, you know, one, two, zero mana spells. So a four mana spell like Wrath of God doesn't seem incredibly and doesn't seem incredibly efficient uh, compared to those examples, um, and in some contexts four mana is definitely going to be too much. Like in CEDH, for example, you never see Wrath of God, um, but what you'll see instead is like Toxic Deluge, which at three mana reaches a threshold of mana efficiency um, such that it sees widespread play. Um, or, you know, should see widespread play. Um, but 
in contexts where threats aren't as mana efficient as in CEDH, or for example, you know, there's more creature threats, um, such that you might want to play additional board sweepers. Um, you know, Wrath of God becomes perfectly playable. Um, and in fact, I would go so far as to say it becomes extremely efficient. It's an incredibly efficient way to convert a card and mana into an incredible amount of tempo and card advantage. Um, right. You know, in this situation, kind of like what we were ta- touching upon before, you know, the tempo and card advantage aspects are almost indistinguishable. So, you know, if, if you weren't necessarily getting the link before about how, you know, tempo can be related to card advantage and how, you know, things can be efficient at higher mana costs, hopefully, you know, things are a lot clearer now. Um, you know, sometimes it can be okay to spend more mana, but when you spend more mana, a card needs to do more stuff. Right. Another good example. Um, Speaking of. Yeah, another good example. <laughs> Cyclonic Rift. Um, you know, we talked about how this one doesn't produce card advantage before, at least not in the traditional sense. Um, seven mana doesn't seem efficient at all. Seven mana seems like a pretty raw deal. Um, you know, I if I'm spending seven mana, a lot of the time I want to be casting Pure into the Abyss and winning, not casting Cyclonic Rift. But, you know, if you're looking at other contexts, like more casual EDH, for example, and, you know, even in EDH where, or, or CEDH, I should say, where you might need to address a very complicated board state filled with, like, tons of stacks pieces, um, you know, spending one card and seven mana for that magnitude of an effect and that effect on, on tempo and, you know, potentially allowing you to address multiple problematic permanents, um, there's clearly, like, an incredibly high degree of efficiency here. Um, you know, right. and this one card, as we touched upon before, will just win games by itself in, in many situations. Right. So the, and yeah. it's, its efficiency scales with the context of the board state. So if you are early game and, you know, each player has, you know, maybe one or two mana rocks out and maybe a dork or two or something like that, then its efficiency when compared to the same spell cast late game, like if there's, you know, especially if there's a couple stacks players or something like that and everyone has 20 mana worth of, of permanence invested into the battle, um, the the amount of efficiency there that you're getting is not static. Um, and, and I think that's an important thing to to to, to understand because uh, a lot of times you'll you'll will look at a card and just like look at the card itself and try to understand and evaluate that card's characteristics efficiency being one of them um kind of in a vacuum without having context uh context is always important and the contextual efficiency of cyclonic rift increases with the density of threats that are on the board. I think yeah. it also is important to say that cyclonic the 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 relative power of cyclonic rift not only scales relative to that but also to the number of players in the game. Yes, uh, absolutely. This card is bad in 1v1, right? Like this this does not see play in mod. I mean, it's modern legal. You can La- play this in modern. Laughs in. I don't know Tron. why you would. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess mono blue Tron. 
Um, but like it, it, it's it, it's this kind of and that's when we're talking about card evaluation in, in Kabul. I think we talked about this all the way back in like the first episode um, is like this card evaluation thing where, you know, it, maybe maybe it was the Into the North episode that I'm thinking of. I don't know it. Very recently, I've been thinking about like this context of like how you evaluate cards along these different axes for different formats, and I and we're, we'll 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 get into that more along down the line eventually. But like especially this card, I feel like is a great example of it, right? Because we see Cyclonic Rift, and if you're really embedded into the EDH community, this is this card is going to bring up a lot of emotions, right? Um, but outside of that context, it's not as powerful. And so like it, it, it just, it goes to show how the context of the format and how those things work matters immensely. Absolutely. Well said. Agreed. Um, so one thing that, uh, to kind of, when we're talking about like this efficiency thing, and it's kind of interesting because we're, I'm looking at our show notes and you, you, we're, <laughs> we're talking fighting fire with fire. Um, and this is the, the fire philosophy that has been used um, in like card creation in R and D recently, which um, Cobble, what does fire, what, what does that mean exactly? I always forget what that means. I don't remember what the the actual um, the initialism of it an actual yeah. what the acronym right the acronym actually stands for, but I mean the the idea was that you're um, embedding basically more that the outworking of it is that you're you're embedding more uh, output to the card for what you're putting into it. Here here it is. It's um, fun inviting. Uh, playable, replayable, replayable, and exciting. Right, right. And I mean, really, none of that has anything to do. <laughs> like, n- none of those words to me actually uh, contextualize the what actually happens with the cards. And uh, what I what I mean by that is, so when when we think of fire, and we're looking at new card printings, so we're we're going to think of things like. Um, uh, Uro. Veil of Summer, okay. Uro, Uro sure. <laughs> yeah. but, Underworld Breach. But like, let's, yeah, let's let's look at Veil oh, of Summer, on. okay. Go ahead. Um, in in Veil of Summer, you you've got a really powerful effect where you are you know making it such that your uh, your spells can't be interacted with, your permanents can't be interacted with, and you draw a card, okay. Um, previous templatings of similar effects would have been either, you know, the, the, the autumn's veil effect or something that lets you cantrip putting both of those things together is kind of the result of this initiative of wanting to kind of make cards more exciting. And you see it also with, uh, both destiny spinner and Allosaurus shepherd, where you've got like this really powerful kind of headline ability that the card has and then oh yeah it also does this other thing too where they're kind of you know just giving you more uh, uh you know more utility more more power for being able to you know like uh, 
improve your the the strength of the the permanence you have on your board um, in addition to doing something that you would have already paid that cost for for just the headline ability but you know and and what what that's what this is doing is you could say that for the output that you're getting because remember we're, we're talking about in terms of what is your input and what is your output if you're looking at um peak or you know uh even you know Gitaxian probe or something like that. You've got you know you're 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 spending either two life or one mana to draw a card and maybe have another effect too. And you know you can compare that to Veil of Summer, and it's like the efficiency of Veil of Summer is just so much higher because what you're getting out of that uh, exchange is 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 so much more. And so. What what we're seeing is new printings that are following kind of the the, the fire mindset are uh, increasing the efficiency of cards because in many cases the rate you know the 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 mana cost for those cards for Allosaurus Shepherd or Destiny Spinner um, you know I would pay one or two mana for those effects anyway even without the added benefits that they're tacking on to it. Right. So we're seeing an, an increase in the efficiency of cards because of this mindset and this methodology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just cards becoming more complex, right? And that's kind of right. like part of the philosophy of, of fire. <laughs> See wheel of misfortune. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, but so, you know, when we talk about when we're fighting with fire, fighting fire with fire in this context, you know, and you look at a format like CDH, you know, what are we talking about with this Pongo? Um, so, yeah, you're bringing it back to CEDH. Um, the format has very particular features that I would say uh, shape the tempo of games. Um, so, and, and, and in many respects, CEDH is probably closer to something like Vintage. Uh, as far as the mm-hmm. tempo of games is considered, um, so there, that has a huge impact on the type of cards that ultimately see play. So, w- you know, one of the big things that we have access to in CEDH is a pretty high density of fast mana, um, and so what fast mana does is, you know, it serves as one of our inputs for exchange, um, but it kind of, again, you know, harking back to um, what uh, we were talking about before, which is, you know, like certain cards can be designed with sort of this intention that like, oh, maybe, you know, you're going to play it on turn four or five instead of on turn one. Um, you know, all this fast mana absolutely blows that out of the water, changes that that metric entirely, because now you're essentially feeding cards as an input to create additional inputs such that you can have ever greater outputs. Um, you know, kind of like our example with Storm earlier. Um, so this means that it's way more po- it's way more possible to play powerful spells ahead of schedule in CEDH. Um, and so decks need to be prepared for that type of explosive power. Um, so you know, to uh, Cobblepot's point before, um, inevitably answers are kind of going to follow suit uh, with the increased power or the increased speed at which we can start casting our really impactful threats. Um, so mm-hmm. you start to see a lot more efficient interaction to fight 
that explosive power. Um, you know, another thing that happens, and, you know, we kind of touched upon this before when we were talking about modern, um, you know, we're talking about CEDH, it's an eternal format. Um, and we have access to an enormous card pool. You know, that's where we get our fast mana in the first place. But also, we're getting all these new cards that are being printed. And a lot of them, you know, we could kind of call them design mistakes. Um, <laughs> you know, if we're talking about the relative vantage point or, you know, of, of past card design, um, you know, they feel like mistakes because they just push the power level of cards so much further um, than, than, you know, what we've had in the past. They're not necessarily mistakes in the sense that, you know, that could have been intended. It, it could be intentional that you're trying to make the game more powerful over time. And, and you know, you know we, we can kind of waffle on this point of, you know, what is a mistake actually. But, you know, from the perspective of our past power level, these cards feel you know, disproportionate. Like it feels like they have a disproportionate effect on the game uh, for their mana costs compared to card designs in the past. Um, and so, you know, some cards are just inherently more efficient than others, right? Like some cards, um, some cards are just like strictly better than others. That's important. Um, you know, we can we can certainly talk about cards being strictly better. And when a card is strictly better, I think that just essentially mathematically like by definition, it's more efficient. Um, but we can also, you know, as we have been doing, talk about the dynamics of a given format or a format power level, if we're talking about EDH, in, you know, in particular. Um, and, and certainly some cards, um, just because of their mechanics, are going to be inherently more efficient than others. Um, and when you have more access to those cards, um, that's going to, you know, further kind of lower the threshold for or or i guess we could say raise the threshold for what a card needs to do for it to see play um and then another important uh factor is you know the 40 starting life and three opponents um this has an enormous impact on the tempo and efficiency propositions of staple cards in 20 life formats uh or you know 1v1 formats you know something like a tarmogoyf you know, a French vanilla beater uh, or a, um, a Delver of Secrets, for example, or just like burn spells, you know, your lightning bolts and stuff like that. Um, you know, they're just way less efficient by virtue of the changed parameters of the format. Um, you know, your three damage doesn't just doesn't go as far uh, in CEDH because you have to deal 120 damage if that's the way you're planning on winning compared to only dealing 20 damage. Um, right. Your Tarmogoyf, you know, even if it's a five, six for two mana, like that's incredibly efficient when, you know, you need to deal 20 damage, but when you need to deal 120 damage, it's, it's not very good. <laughs> um, which, which again, which again brings us to the notion of efficiency, not being a static, uh, concept. Right. So, you know, the, uh, you could look at a lightning bolt and say, that's really efficient. And you could say, well, you know, it is in, in, in 20 life, 60 card formats, but it's not efficient in 40 life. And, you know, for, for that very reason, especially right. when you have, you know, mm -hmm. uh, three opponents. So being able to, you know, contextually evaluate cards for CEDH for the context that we have, um, makes it such that, 
uh, you were you were talking before too about how um, some of the the, the the cards just have a higher output when we we've been talking about resources we talked about resources way early where you know kind of the the thing that people care about like the 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 actual tangible inputs and outputs that we really focus on are cards and mana and yes stuff in graveyards are important yes life you know comes into the equation but they're they're not they're they're less tangential because of our you know 40 life for instance that makes them even less tangential um or even more tangential i mean so things like you know and any spell where we're paying life for cards are much more explosive so you know, if you're looking at Necropotence, if you're looking at Adnaws, you're looking at uh, Fire Covenant, you know, you know, all of these 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 cards that were kind of designed originally um, with 20 life being the starting life total, total for, for, for each player. Um, you could, in that context, say, well, they're this efficient because this this was kind of the, the expectation of of what their ceiling would look like. Well, when you double people's life totals, the ceilings of all of those cards get way higher, which in turn causes their efficiency to become much better. We talked about this. Are so much higher. We talked about this in our our last episode, right, where we were talking about how, like, if you were to design, was it us? Or, I I don't remember. <laughs> into the north was talking about. Into the north. Okay, that's right. Multi- thinking into the north. lightning bolt for multi. Okay. I keep right. Anyway, but yeah. these things, th- these are parts of the same conversation, though, right. especially in the terms of context and in terms of the context being uh, not a static thing. Uh, it's important to understand what it is kind of in, 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 you know, concrete terms, what we're talking about. And that's why I'm trying to clarify. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, again, context is super, super important. And, uh, you know, that's probably if there's like a key message to take out of this, it's to really think about context um, right. because it's going to help you evaluate what cards to play in CDH, but also what cards to play in other formats. Um, and right. you know, what we're doing with this series is trying to come up with the grand unified theory of deck building, you know, not just talking about building your CDH deck, but rethinking how you build decks such that you're going to be a better deck builder across the board. Um, you know, right. rethinking card evaluations, you know, rethinking all kinds of stuff, uh, having a common framework for doing that. You know, again, when we're talking about just casual EDH as, as an example, um, you know, consider the, the different context. Um, you know, there's a social contract in place when you're playing casual EDH that condemns expressly cards that simply win efficiently. Um, you know, I think that coalition victory being on the ban list, like to some extent exemplifies that fact, right? Like it's a card that literally just says win the game. And if we look at the ban list in EDH as kind of like, you know, it's, it's supposed to be not like an exhaustive ban list, but it's supposed to kind of be a, a guide for like what cards you shouldn't play. I guess flash is probably a better example now that it's on the, the ban list. Um, but, you know, th- these are cards on the ban list and the message behind them being on the ban list is, you know, don't play cards that, you know, for not that much mana, all they kind of do is say win the game. It's okay if they 
do something, you know, incredibly impactful and exciting. And, you know, that kind of inevitably causes you to win the game. But don't just win the game. When you get rid of that, when you have that social contract in place and there's like a decreased pressure imposed by the fact that people are going to just, you know, potentially win kind of out of nowhere on the spot for not that much mana. What that does is it redefines efficiency. It says that, oh, efficiency now is trying to maximize the output from each card input and not necessarily maximize mana input to output. So again, you know, that's why battle cruisers can become efficient. Your battle cruiser decks, you know, casting your seven mana spells um, that essentially like I don't know, casting like Vorinclex, for example, um, you know, maybe maybe not the best example because it's not a super nice card, but like Zendikar Res- Resurgence, which I believe is kind of another, there you go. yeah, like mana doubler effect or Nyx Bloom Ancient, for example. Um, these cards become incredibly efficient because like they just have such an enormous output um, for the card input and it's okay to spend more mana. In fact, like you should just anticipate spending a lot more mana over the course of the game, but Right. Obviously, you're just going to have a limited access to cards. So you want each card that you find to be kind of as impactful as possible. So, you know, if we're discussing this within the context of CEDH, right? Um, and because we are a CEDH podcast, right? So so tying this in, you know, what what do we really kind of hold as like, I'm I'm kind of like setting you up for this because I feel like everybody knows the answer here, right? But it's like, what is the poster child for uh, efficiency in in competitive EDH? Um, let me think about that. Uh, oh wait, hold on, I have it right right in front of me in our show notes. It's Lavinia. Yeah, <laughs> got it for you. Perfect. Uh, Next question. Got him. Well, so you know, if we're if we're talking about um, kind of like our efficiency equation obviously we want a card that kind of like maximizes output for a given input plus like input of input of mana plus input of cards and i can think of no better card to exemplify that probably than ad nauseum which is Mm -hmm. i think in my in my estimation like the poster child for efficiency in cdh i just there's no card i think in the format that converts mana into cards at a better rate. You know, you're spending five mana and getting, you know, 30 plus cards for five mana. And I mean, like, you, you could argue that, like, maybe there's one other card. Pure into the yeah, abyss. Yeah, into the abyss. But that's two extra mana. You know, that's not negligible, right? Like, that's certainly not negligible. And Ad Nauseam is also an instant, so it kind of fits into more places. Um, and, like, the amount of cards that you get for the two extra mana you know maybe you get like 10 to 15 more cards so you get like 50 percent more cards but you're almost paying 50 percent more mana anyway so like they're comparable in that respect but one just has like a kind of higher threshold that you have to reach um but anyway there's trade-offs yeah too. exactly i, I mean, mean there's trade-offs you know you can cast peer into the abyss at at, at two life and still draw half your deck. Right. So there's... But you can you add nulls into a again, whole creature. Context. Right? Or, and you can, peer, peer, exactly. Yeah. Peer into the abyss... Context matters. Scare, ...scales down or scales up better the less life life you have. Right. Yes. Right. Exactly. Um, so, 
you know, I, I don't think it's super meaningful to get into that conversation right now. But, you know, they're, they're both similar enough cards. I think Ad Nauz is just more emblematic uh, as far as the format right. is concerned. Um, and if you're playing... Well, it's been around so much longer, right? Like, right. I mean, I, I, I remember back in back in the olden days of 2018 um, <laughs> when you we would just cast, like, end-step value ad nauses. Right. Right. Ye old ad Well, I mean, <laughs> you say that, but I cast plenty of main phase ad nauses back then, too. I, I, I know plenty of people did, but have you ever played Magic with me? I sat on my ad nauses. Uh, Are you kidding me? <laughs> you're the worst. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, you know, this card... It's it's not a win condition on its own per se in the sense that well I guess it's probably fair to say it's not a, like a finisher on its own right um, but it you know it, it's easy to see how in producing all of those resources you know getting that much output getting all of those cards it's fairly trivial to convert into a win from that point on obviously mm-hmm. you know you, you need to have a properly constructed deck to do that efficiently but like you know it's it's not hard to see how it's not hard to imagine how like once you've drawn 30 cards how you would build your deck to then subsequently win um right. you know i it characterizes by itself a lot of what we've been talking about when you're talking about uh deck design that's proper to be able to house Natnaz. So we, you know, we've had all of this discussion talking about, you know, zero, one, and two CMC cards and how something that's that's, you know, three or more has to do, you know, something that's really big. Well, you know, if you're if you're building your deck around Adnaws or, you know, with the express intent of being able to profitably be able to play Adnaws even during a main phase, the idea there is that we're running a lot of bootstrapping cards. Mm-hmm. And bootstrapping cards being, you know, cards that, you know, with with zero inertia, you know, with, you know, maybe you you tap out, you tap your five mana to cast Adnaz and you don't have any mana to do anything with, you know, you, you need to be drawing into cards that are mana positive and have zero mana cost investment to get them going. And um, that kind of characterizes, I think, the format as a whole to a large degree where, you know, we're looking because those those types of bootstrapping cards what they do is um, on the one hand side they are allowing you to get your game off the ground extremely quickly very explosively you know in the early turns and also once you've actually executed your gnaws then they also allow you to explode out the other end with you know, your 30 plus cards to be able to actually cast something that is, you know, a, a, a you know, a game finishing sequence, whether it's a storm sequence or whether it's, you know, just, you know, a two card combo that we won't name here. <laughs> um, you know, all of that exemplifies why efficiency matters in CEDH. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, if we had been recording this, you know, like a year ago, Maybe the poster child for efficiency would not have been Adnaz, but would instead have been something like Flash Plus Hulk, where the mana input right. is substantially lower, but it's a two-card input to win, right? Um, yeah. You know, it's a different form of efficiency. Some people prefer Adnaz and think it's more efficient because it's a one-card combo. And, you know, I, I don't think, you know, even though we are talking about efficiency, um, 
that's probably something that is better saved for discussion on wind conditions specifically. Wink, wink. You know, we'll get to that point. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, I, I think, though, that there is certainly, um, like, a lot of deck building considerations that come out of not needing to, you know, devote as many slots as you do to making Adnaz convert into a win, for example. You know, instead getting to play this two-mana, two-card combo um, that doesn't require any additional inputs beyond that point, uh, provides, you know, a certain degree of resiliency. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. But, um, you know, all that to say that, you know, there there are other cards um, historically that could probably be considered like the poster child of efficiency in CDH. And, you know, we could talk about other cards that, you know, to a large extent are super um, great examples of, of just how efficient cards can be in CDH. I think Underworld Breach is another fantastic example, um, especially when you've assembled the entire combo. Um, but, you know, that's kind of got the flash issue where it's like more cards to input, but less mana. Um, but it like kind of self-assembles in a way. It's, it's an interesting one. Um Again, those are trade-offs yeah. where you're you're looking at, you know, the the same you you could when like we were talking about before with with force of will is force of will an efficient card? It's like well, yes, it's very mana efficient, but it's not card right. efficient. And there's you know, depending on context, the different kinds of efficiency are going to matter more. Right, and and hopefully you know all of you at home are starting to see how, you know. Eventually, when we conclude this series, the episode on wind conditions, which is not our next episode, but probably the one after that, um, you know, all this stuff is going to kind of come to a head and, and finally come together um, and, and, you know, be kind of um, completely, you know, not unified, but there, there's going to be a sort of a, a capping off of the discussion and, and everything will right. come together, I think, in a, in a nice way once we start talking about that. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very interesting because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we could touch on there. You know, one of the things that we were talking about before we went on uh, when we were kind of going over our show notes was uh, specifically like Winota and how that brings you card advantage, right? Like, um, she just basically like vomits her deck onto the board right right we were talking about right. snowballing and, and that <laughs> yeah right and that's right and that has to do with you know action economy and um one of the things we we didn't really dive into didn't you know quite feel right um you know we're, we're, we're talking about manipulating the action economy of of players in the game and, you know, on the side of Storm, what you're doing is you're trying to make your action economy as, as high as possible. Um, in the case of Tempo, you're trying to, like, keep yours steady while trying to, you know, uh, you know reduce by degrees by using, you know, in, you know efficient interaction, you know, the, the action economy of your opponents. Um, really what we have, that there, there's, there's, you know, another archetype that, that we didn't touch on but it's it's largely playing that same type of game and that stacks so you know in stacks especially you know if you're you're using cards like rule of law you're looking at um trying to uh in 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 one hand control the action economy of everybody at the table 
So um, rule of law is going to keep everybody from being able to do the, you know, the, the explosive sequences of play that they want to that are kind of, you know, breaking the game's, you know, fundamental rules, you know, of, of you know, one land and one card per turn and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, by, by saying, you know, players can really only take this one action per turn, you are disrupting the action economy of all of your opponents. And the idea is that you are wanting to find ways to break parity with that, whether you're Wynota or whether you're Kenrith or, you know, you know, some other, um, you know, some other commander that is allowing you to take actions without actually casting spells. And thus what you're doing is you are forwarding your, you know, your, your velocity forward while everybody else is kind of being held in place. And um, all of that is also part of the, the, the efficiency discussion because really what you're doing is, again, it's how, how much of you are you getting out of your resources. And, you know, if you're Kadama and every time you cast, a, you know, you put a permanent into play, you're putting another permanent into play, then your output is going to be significantly higher than the output of the of you know your opponents, especially if you're you know working within a stack's context. Right. So the yeah, it's there. There's there's a whole lot more that we could discuss, but um, we wanted to try to keep this to a you know a pithy three hours. <laughs> well, and and I know we're so. we're we're going to be do, discussing some stuff about stacks here in the the coming weeks. So keep an eye out for that. But you know, here as we close things out, you know. Pongo and Cobble, you know, if if people are finding that their decks aren't consistently doing what you want them to do, you know, what are things that they should consider? Um, so I, I guess I have one point here, and then I'll let Cobble say his piece. But you know, one one sort of bit of food for thought is: Are you able? You know, is your deck built in a way? such that you're able to convert resources at an acceptable rate for the amount of impact you need to make on the game state at various points in the game. Um, and this is an important question to ask yourself, um, regardless of the format that you're in. You know, if we're talking about CEDH, then obviously, you know, with the various, the, the, the impact you need to make on the game state is disproportionately at kind of the beginning, early on in the early turns. But if you're talking about like something like EDH, for example, where you remove the pressure of people being able to take extremely fast wins, um, or even something like Standard, for example, um, you know, Tibalt's trickery notwithstanding, um, then you know <laughs> perhaps you need to also be playing cards that are providing efficiency, not just in terms of mana, but you know, in terms of cards as well, um, you know, that that are able to have a greater output for the input of cards that you're 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 making such that you're converting mana essentially into more board impact um so yeah i think that you know this is something to consider and and it's probably one of the a very it's probably a critical thing to consider uh and you need to think about the format that you're building for and the dynamics of the format that you're building for right well <laughs> I don't really have anything to tack on to that, especially if we're if we're speaking context free. But um, 
in the context of CEDH, for sure. Um, if, if you evaluate lists that are known lists, you're going to quickly see that those lists are going to have a lot of things in common. And uh, that isn't a mistake. It's, it's not an accident that, you know, you, you see a lot of the same kind of staple cards, uh, whether it be the interaction, whether it be the, the ramp suite with the, the free mana rocks. Um, there's a lot of reuse of concepts within the metagame, and a large reason for that is the efficiency and thus consistency that is uh, earned by, by, by using those cards. So um, one of the things that's, you know, uh, kind of a balance for, for me being kind of like a fringe-ish brewer, I, I like to, you know, try things that are maybe sometimes outside of the box of what, you know, you, you, would, you would expect to be kind of the, 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 typical, the typical things that, that, that people run and lists that are, you know, have been proven and tried and true. Um, one of those, the, the things that you, you take on when you start looking at things that are outside of the box is that you, you potentially do, you, you, you introduce variance and you introduce um, possible lacks of consistency in, in doing that. So um, just kind of keeping an eye to the overall efficiency of the list is, is going to inextricably be linked to the consistency of that list as well. So you got to keep those things in mind. Yeah, that's, this has been a, an absolute blast to, to really discuss this with you guys. Um, and, you know, as we've been going through and doing these uh, episodes, I, I, I just, you know, I saw a lot of comments where people were, you know, all across the spectrum were really enjoying what we did last time. And uh, I hope this, you know, uh, is just as impactful as uh, the first piece was. But, um, you know, that about wraps things up here for us today. Uh, just a quick reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Sculpty Boys, or you can find a direct link in our link tree in the description below. Want to give an extra shout out and thanks to all of our patrons who keep the lights on around here. If you too would like to become a patron, you can head on over to patreon.com slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. Thank you again for joining us. And uh, thank you, Pongo and Cobblepot, for putting uh, together, you know, all these points and really working on this episode for us. This is a, we really appreciate as the community everything you guys have been doing. Glad to be part of it. My pleasure. I think uh, yeah. in our last episode, our next, our upcoming episode will be uh, on archetypes. So, you know, deck building with purpose, picking cards that suit the overall tempo of your game plan. So, uh, yeah, look out for that one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, from ev all of us here at the Mind Sculptors, I'm Callahan, and see you next time. <laughs>